Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and with me is lovely Gary, 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 Gary. Bang, bang. What are we doing today, Pete? Well, today we're doing, well, it's it's a sad day, Gary. It's a sad day in two ways. One, it's the end of our second Fife and Forfer Yeomanry. <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, um, series of podcasts. Uh, I don't know how many there have been. Do you know? Well, it feels like we've been doing it for about three years. So, uh, say ten. <laughs> There's been a lot. There's been a lot. And uh, they've been, for me, they've been really interesting and uh, they've been a great bunch of lads. I remember interviewing them and uh, and it's great to get their memories out to a bigger audience. We've- and anybody who wants to learn more could buy your book, Burning Still. Sausages. Burning Still, a tank regiment at war, 1939-1945. Much more in it than the uh, tank regiment at war 1959 to 68 yeah there's bugger all in that one <laughs> unless you're israeli i suppose now uh so this 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 one's called epilogue and it, it's basically uh it's uh, in the last episode we'd had their ve day celebrations on 8th of may and uh, there have been a couple of slightly amusing tales of people getting paralytic drunk which we disapproved of strongly and then we? they all of course went straight home now no, of course no, 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 no. Why can't they go straight home? Well, they're they're part of an occupying army. They're responsible for maintaining order uh, and 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 actually to re-establish. Well, not re-establish because you can't call the Nazis sound government, but to re-establish to establish sound governance in a, a war-torn Germany. Now they moved to a, a a base at a place called Bredstedt, which was near the east coast of Schleswig-Holstein. And about 15 miles from the Danish frontier. You've been near that area, haven't I you? I think I have, actually, thinking about it. Now, what's their first big task, do you think, as a, as a unit now? Because, I mean, they're, they're, they've still got jobs to do. What's their first big job? Well, they've got to receive the uh, the hordes of German soldiers as they cross the border. They're falling back from their former role, garrisoning uh, both Norway and Denmark. Now, some of the men were amazed by the defiant martial attitude of some of their erstwhile opponents. And this is Trooper Ron Forbes of 4 Troop B Squadron. We lined the, the roads just outside Bredstedt when they were coming along. We were impressed. When they came towards the town, they all came to attention, marched at attention, and they were singing. Some of these marching songs the Germans had were very good, very inspiring, some of the boys saluted them. 
I didn't salute them. Bit of a Scottish didn't know, was that, Gary? <laughs> uh, Edinburgh, obviously. Yeah, now there's another really... We, we referenced it in the last episode, the problem of the dis, the thousands of displaced persons uh, that they'd been in the forced uh, labour camps, the German forced labour camps. And uh, so what do the squadrons do? They, 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 they send men to these camps to try and keep order. Um, now, how does this go? It doesn't go. It's not a happy part of the story, is it, for well, anybody? Sadly, as was often the case amongst the British occupying forces in post-war Germany, there was little of the natural sympathy that might have been expected for these poor benighted victims of the German slave labour regime. And there was very little real concern as to what might happen to them once they were returned to their home countries, some of which were under Soviet control. Yeah, where they had a, 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 a then well, a poor outlook on life. This is uh, what you're going to tell us what Major Douglas Pinky Hutchison <laughs> Our only, who was at this time, I think, second in command of the whole regiment. What does he say? We had a look after some large camps of displaced persons. We were supposed to entertain them. We played football against them. They were a mixture of anything from Eastern Europe. They were a miscellaneous, ill-disciplined, rather tiresome lot. They were repatriated during the summer. I suppose, poor souls, that when they were returned to Russia, they had a fairly sticky response. And I think you and I both feel a bit I mean we know what that sticky it, it's it covers a multitude of vicious uh, treatment and murder basically yeah now uh, in the early days of the occupation how are they getting on with the German civilians well there's a, a policy of strict non-fraternization and that was enforced to restrict social interaction as much as possible with the general population however it didn't last. And you're going to tell us what Corporal Roy Valance of 4 Troop A Squadron said. One of our favourites. Uh, he says this. I was quite happy with it. I think most people were, because I didn't really have any great love for the Germans. All these years we've been taught to hate them, and the only good German is a dead one. But you can't really live amongst people and go on disliking them, particularly as they were in such a poor state. They had no food, no transport, most of their cities were bombed to smithereens. All these things start with the children. Then one thing leads to another. Soldiers give children sweets, then the parents start to talk to them, then things take their natural course. You just become friendlier. And that's uh, that's almost every soldier I've ever interviewed from uh, from the occupation. They just get... It, it does start with the children. So you can't really be nasty to kids, can you? No, no. Uh, no matter how much you hate the Germans, you don't hate German kids. And then, of course, it goes on. Now, sadly, the regiment didn't survive long in its wartime state. The presence of the senior regiment, that's the first Fife and Fourfile Yeomanry. Who we've sadly not mentioned at all, hardly. <laughs> they're in Germany, and that meant that there was a large exchange of personnel which tore the guts out of the unit. Now, on 17th of June 1945, uh, ju just all these men that we've followed for so long in these podcasts, uh, they find themselves packed off in drafts to join the first Fife and Fourfile Yeomanry. Uh, and what's more... Where are they? There's, there's something. There's, what's the elephant in the room? And for once, I don't mean you. What is the elephant in the room? Well, they're told that they're bound for the Far East and uh, the continuing war against the Japanese. Yep, the war doesn't end with the Japanese. Uh, the, the Germans. Uh, well, yeah, whatever. That. 
<laughs> now, the young ones who'd not been in the army that long, and uh, they'd been given a high demobilisation group number, and they were given no choice but to be drafted. Now, men who'd been in the army longer and therefore had a lower demob number were, were given the chance to volunteer. Now, why might they want to volunteer to join the first well, 54 fires? They're friends. They'd want to go wherever their friends were. Uh, and if they were moving into the five and four fire yeomanry, it's only natural first, you, yeah. you'd want to, to go with them. Absolutely. And here's an example of, of one who actually was quite positive about the whole idea. And this is Jack Edwards. We've been following him for a while. And he joins the first 54 fires. What does Jack Edwards say? Well, I would just say before I read this that there's some language of the time in this that um, we would now think as, as inappropriate. But you've got, you've got to think about the, the emotional state they were in. This This is war. And this is Trooper Jack Edwards. We were told all the young men of demobilisation groups above a certain number had to parade in a cinema on the Sunday morning to be addressed by the colonel. We were all there, all the younger end of us, and the colonel got on the stage and gave us a talk to say that we were all experienced soldiers who'd been in action at various times over the last 12 months, but that soon the regiment would be disbanded. But if any of us wanted to stay with the regiment and stay with their friends, we could transfer to the first Fife and Forfar, which was also in Germany, but which was due to go to the Far East. After this talk, a gang of us in our squadron gathered together and we said, well, the first five and four fur have got crocodiles. We knew that. We hated the thought of the Japanese. Their name was mud as far as we were concerned. We said, let's go out and incinerate the yellow bastards. We all volunteered to go to the first five and four fur. A day or two later, there was a convoy went with about a 100 of us from the regiment. While we were on the way there, there was a similar number coming from the five first five and four far, older men coming back to our regiment. And what he's talking about is the crocodiles had flamethrowers. That, that's what yes. he's talking That's why, why he's talking about incinerating uh, the Japanese. It's, uh, um, they were a nasty weapon. Um, now, one of those who volunteers, who would that be? Who would volunteer for anything? Well, that was still Brownlee. Now, when we left him, he'd, he'd been injured and he'd recovered from his minor wound and uh, the cheerful excesses of his brief leave back in the what UK. What do you mean by cheerful excesses? Cheerful excesses. Happy excesses. Now, he'd managed to rejoin the regiment at Bredstedt on the 31st of May. And this is Captain William Steele Brownlee, now of the first five and four fire yeomanry. Yeah, well, he would be, yeah. Uh, Colonel Alec informed me that I had volunteered to take part. The plan later unfolded. We would have crocodiles, flame-throwing Churchills, which would, with which to burn stubborn Japanese in their pillboxes at a range of a 100 yards as they tried to defend their homeland. We would fly to the UK, have 30 days leave, and then fly to the USA and link up with the tanks, which had gone ahead by sea. So that's the plan. That's what they're going to do. Now, in the end, it's all cancelled when modern technology, which is an interesting way of putting it, brought the war to an abrupt end. And Captain William Still Brownlee goes on to say, Two atomic bombs had spared us, average age 19 years, six months, as well as many others. Another conventional war. He means that they, they, they wouldn't have to go and fight, take the island. I have never had any sympathy with those who take a one-sided view of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this is interesting because it's almost... Impossible for us to understand that. But I have to say, of all the hundreds of people I interviewed about this, that's pretty well the average soldier's view. And who can blame them, in my view? The senior officers, like 
Pinky Hutchinson, as you refer to him. Your favourite. Uh, watched the drafts come and go. And uh, ultimately, he found himself appointed as the acting colonel of the remnants of the second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry. And Major Douglas Hutchinson says this. During the summer, those who were not due for early release, all the younger or more recently joined members of the regiment, were drafted into the first Fife and Four Fire Regiment. They, in turn, sent us their people, like the remainder of us, who were due for early release. The idea being that having achieved this, the second fire from Forfar would be in due course disbanded. Colonel Scott was given an appointment commanding a regiment. It may have been his own regiment, the Inniskilling Dragoons. He was a regular soldier. He left the regiment and for a few months I was paid as an acting lieutenant colonel, which was very reasonable in the circumstances as I didn't have very much to do. Good old Pinky Hutchison. Um, now, as the year goes on, you know, uh, sorry, May, June, July, as, as you're moving on, uh, the, 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 there's no, the threat of, uh, War against being involved in the war is gone with the atomic bombs and peace in August 1945. So, what do you think the men's minds turned to, Gary? What would your mind have turned to? Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But uh... <laughs> you think so little of me? Uh, demobilisation. The army was keen to help as best it could in preparing them for a renewal of civilian yeah, life. There were courses, there were education, there were sport, there's all sorts of things. But gradually, the regiment just erodes away. Um, there's uh, demobilisation parties, which are fantastic booze-ups sometimes. But you can imagine what it's like, old faces disappearing, and soon there's hardly anybody left. Uh, you know, uh, so who is last man standing? Well, fittingly, a Dundee recruit from 1939, then a trooper, but now an officer, Alex Gilchrist, Gilchrist was the man charged with winding up the second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry on the final official day of existence, which was 9th of January 1946. And this is what Alex said. There are only about 40 to 50 of us that are left in the regiment. Right? <laughs> I was acting adjutant by that time, and it was a matter of being in constant contact with the brigade headquarters to see what the next move was. We had to get rid of all of the vehicles. I had fellows driving to Husum and Schleswig. The regiment was just being run down completely. Eventually, I was told by Brigadier Monkey Blacker that I had to get all the records packed up in big steel boxes and return them to brigade headquarters. The day came. That was the end of the unit. I was left with about 14 or 15 vehicles, and I had to get rid of them. Brigade didn't want them. Division didn't want them. I thought, what the hell can I do with them? I found there was a big old quarry not so far away. It was filled with water. I lined up those vehicles, put them in first gear, and just let them simply roll into the water. Believe you me, half the farmers from all round were there within a few minutes. They had tractors and these vehicles were pulled out again within half an hour and put to their own use. And that's a uh, classic uh, British Army. Now, Gilchrist, or Alex as you call him... Oh, I, th I did know him, remember. Yeah, went off to serve the rest of his time with the Inns of Court Regiment on the Danish border and he himself was demobilised in May 1946. Now, demobs what the men are wishing for, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely that, that it's the centre of their lives. Everything's it's going to be perfection. It's the end of all problems and troubles, isn't it? Yeah, but unfortunately, it's not always what they wanted when they actually got 
back into civilian life. Why? What's the problem? Well, most returned to the jobs they'd left in the harsh economic climate of the past post-war world. There's little choice. But they've often had to bite their lips as they witness colleagues who've not gone to war, for whatever reason, now promoted to managerial positions far above them. They'd lost several years of their working life, crucial years that were difficult to catch and up. Do you remember this from the South? South I remember Dutch exactly South? this. It's, and it, it, the, the reason that this is coming up is this is happening all over the bloody country. Now, one example of this is uh, John Thorpe. He was a, a cracking lad. No need for any unit because they're civilians now. And uh, tell us what John Thorpe said. In June 1944, I went to France weighing over 13 stone, fighting fit. I came back from there weighing barely nine stone, a gaunt shadow of my former self. Generally, my feelings were to forget all about it. No one wanted to contact me or wanted to know, and no one cared. I'd done what I had to do. I'd lost six years of my life. I'd expended too much of my drive. It was an awful ordeal to find my niche to pick up where I had been. I returned to the county council, a very small fry, in a big sea. No concessions were made for the six years I'd been away. I was placed on a grade as if I was just starting a job with them. I didn't expect much, but felt a bit of a twit as a junior. I'd lost a lot of work experience, and now the war was over, I had no concessions in the professional exams. I would have to take all subjects at once and pass at the same time. Our old promotion routes had been filled, and we should have to take a back seat. I was not welcomed back. Thus, I settled back to civilian life. Now, this is uh, this for some reason. I find this really. I suppose I knew somebody. I find this really quite heartrending, and 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 I can imagine how frustrated they were. And and there must have been many people who just couldn't cope with it. I mean, what what what, what could they do? Well, often they thrashed around, endlessly changing their jobs, seeking something that they could never quite define. And this is again. No, no unit. Len Newman. And this is what Len says. I went in the army as an 18 year old, knew nothing about anything, came out as a married man who'd been away from home for three and a half years with great difficulty. There I was, been, been away in the army for, for a few years. We were promised our civvy jobs back. Could you really imagine me going back as a junior clerk at Purley's? That's his old workplace. Like a lot of people, I had a hell of a job to settle down. I really did. I went to work on the railway first, electrical work. Hated it. Then I went to the offices of the railway, engineers department. A bit better. I think a lot of people from the services had a real job to settle down. We missed the camaraderie, the comradeship we got used to. We were all reliant on each other. We looked after each other. We were happy together. And that's what we missed. Yeah. And a lot of comradeship they talk about. I mean, you are still in uh, various WhatsApp groups with your comrades. And that wasn't a fighting war you were in. That was just being in the army and the comradeship mattered. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even today, people still say that's that's one of the things they miss. That's why they join associations and groups, you know. Yeah. Now, this is uh, uh, John Gray, who returned to his pre-war work behind the counter of his... Uh, Local cooperative grocers. Now he's 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 a he's a funny bloke, isn't he? I mean, I, I'm not saying he's he's not weird, but he he's he's a, a man who liked to see the funny side of things. He was a bit more left wing than most people of that time, uh, uh, but he also missed the comradeship of the army. What what did he say, Gary? 
You're eight, you're 18, an impressionable age. You lived, you ate, you fought, and you died with these fellows. Well, they died. I lived. It was like a big family. There was always somebody to help you if you needed it. If there was anything wrong at home or anything like that. It was an incredible thing. I think the word they used is camaraderie. You were all mates together. When I came out, there was this feeling of emptiness. I was leaving it all behind. I didn't really want to. It's most peculiar. It was horrible. I don't know. You seem to be at your wit's end all the time. You got easily aggravated, bad-tempered. It was all the things I wasn't when I went in. I was when I came out. I think it was what helped to ruin my first marriage. Was that you or the person the last bit? No, that was him saying that. Gotcha. Now, as you mentioned, he was always on the left politically and uh, Gray becomes an activist with both his trade union and Labour Party because he's trying in some way to improve the quality of life for ordinary people, including himself. Including himself, yeah. And this is what John Gray says. We were being told all the time in the army that we were fighting for better things, a country fit for heroes to live in. Well, I was one of the heroes and I wanted it fit for me. I went out of my way to make it like that, for me and anyone else that required it. If people didn't have the brains to do it for themselves, I'd do it for them. Now, there's a tinge of arrogance there, isn't it? But Tinge? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I still like him. Uh, now, uh, another character, Len Harkins. Now, in the book, there's loads of stories about Len Harkins. His, his basic reaction to anything was if anybody crossed him in any way, he'd thump him. <laughs> At one point, he nearly thumps Pinky Hutchison, which would have been at the end of his career. But the war acted as a jolt, and that set him on a more measured path through life. I can sort of relate to that. I wasn't very pleasant when I was a young 16-year-old. You were harem scared, And now I'm lovely. You are lovely now. Yes, I agree. And this is what Len Harkin said. When I thought I was lucky enough to pull through, I never thought I was getting out of Normandy. But when you think, Christ, that was near, I said to myself then, if I ever come through this, I'll bloody work day and night, which I did. And 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 he he, he, he turned the corner. He ran several successful enterprises. Uh, it, it wasn't in the most respectable of trades. It was in the horse trade, buying and selling horses. I suppose that's respectable enough. Um and he made a success of his life. Uh, you know, there you go. Now, what? Else, who else? Uh, we're going through some of the big characters we've talked about. Who? Who? Who stands above? In my view, almost above all as a character. Well, we? you're you're referring to William Steel Brownlee, uh, and for him, the end of the war must have been a real challenge. Having been rescued from the prospect of service in the Far East, he had an inconsequential job as second in command of an HQ squadron with the 22nd Armour Brigade in Schleswig-Holstein until his demobilisation in late 1946. Now, the question that for us, I never knew him, you never knew him, but we, we've read his, uh, his account and we've gone through what he said. Do you, do you think it's possible that civilian life could ever match up to the... Just the frenzied excitement of leaving, like the, in Operation Blue Cut, where he's leading his troop, charging down those roads, brassing up the side, fighting German tanks here, there, and could be dead any minute. Do you, do you think? Do you think anything in civilian life could match that, Gary? No. Was that a rhetorical question? Yes. Are you going to ask me what rhetorical means? No. 
Now, he went back to university and graduated in French and German in 1950. Can we have some examples of French and German? Merd. And German? Pimmel. Wow. <laughs> then a career as a language teacher in Renfrewshire, although he could not quite stay away from the army as he served for many years with the local territorials, the Ayrshire Yeomanry. Yeah, and uh, he wrote their regimental history. Uh, and I quote some of it. it, it it's a fantastic book. Uh, it, What's it, it called? It's called The Proud... Honestly, chums, you should buy this if you see it. It's about 30 quid usually. The Proud Trooper. <laughs> the history of the Ayrshire Yeomanry from its raising in the 18th century to 1964. A title that stirs the blood, I think. And that's available from, uh, or it's Second published Act. rather, by um, Collins of London in 1964. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is a cracking book, especially on the First and Second World War. Now, there is another rhetorical question. Did he ever really settle down? Now, perhaps best to quote his own last words in his memoirs and came home safe, which was written in 1989. And this is William Steele Brownlee. Yes. Adjustment was difficult, but also necessary. And from the back of my mind come words that were often heard during the war. What do you do in real life? <laughs> well, civilian life may have been real, but it was a lot less exciting. And with that, I want you to think about that, Gary, and let's have a period of silence while you think. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There were post-war success stories. Tom Hild, 
went back to study law at university, leading to a successful career as a barrister and then a judge. Yeah, I remember interviewing him in a lovely house outside Nottingham. Great, uh, lovely man, great chap. And he's another officer who used to lead the... Remember he told us yeah. about charging down the roads, brassing up and getting out of the tank to pull Germans out of slitteriches. That could have been his last action. Now... Meanwhile, Alex Gilchrist returned to his pre-war work in the sales office of a printing firm where he found that his war experiences had broadened his outlook and made him realise what he was capable of. Yeah, and it worked because he he got a lot more self-confidence and and I don't know how. He found that he did get promoted, so he got some recognition and he had a successful career. There are some people who doesn't really matter what they do. Uh, Let's have an example of that. And that... That, that's not to denigrate this man, because I actually have the highest regard for him. Who am I talking about? Well, you're referring to the wealthier officers for whom the war was merely an interruption in their pre-war careers. And therefore, Sir John Gilmore returned to work in the brewing industry before succeeding in becoming a Conservative Party Member of Parliament for East Fife from 1961 to 1979. He was actually Lord Lieutenant of Fife from 1980 to 1987. And he was a cracking bloke. Uh, 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 But he still found time for the Fife and Four for Yeomanry. He rejoined them on their reformation as an armoured car reconnaissance unit and uh, acting as their colonel from 1947 to 1950. Now, the other one who was wealthy and our personal favourite, I really do remember interviewing him, Pinky Hutchison. He lived in Aberfeldy or Keldy. I can't remember which it is. Uh, But he uh, he was another. He was rich. What did he do? He returned to his prosperous family business and became Colonel of the Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry in succession to Sir John Gilmore from 1950 to 1953. Now, for others, their experience in the second Fife and Four Fires changed everything about their lives. And one such was uh, Ray Roy, Roy Valance. Now, uh, what had Roy done before the war? Let's have a look at that. Well, he'd been a printer before joining up, but the army became his life's work. He became a regular soldier and saw even more active service with the 8th King's Royal Irish Hussars in Korea in 1951. Yeah, and that, I, I think there's actually as much about that in the interview I did with him as there is about the... Because remember, that for us, we're focusing on the Second World War, but the Korean War is a big thing as well. Cracking now, bloke. He had the honour of being the first regimental sergeant major on the amalgamation of his regiment with the 4th Queen's Own Hussars to form the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. He was ultimately commissioned. He was a major when I interviewed him. Uh, and, and, oh, it's a classic thing of, uh, he's not a proper officer. Yeah. <laughs> Can you guess, Gary? Can uh, you guess? Was he a quartermaster? <laughs> yeah. Quartermaster, uh, in 1959. And as quartermaster, served in Germany, Aden and Malaya. And he was finally medically discharged in 1971. Wow. Uh, what a career. Uh, that's something. Um, now there's others who wanted to become a regular ser- soldier, but, uh, the war puts a bloody stop to that. And when I say bloody stop to that, I mean bloody. What do I mean? Well, this is Alf Courtnidge, uh, and he says this. It was unfortunate that I was wounded, but I think had I not been, I would have stayed on as a soldier, I think. I did begin to enjoy it. Now, we, we I don't know whether we talked about him in the podcast, but it's certainly in the book. I, I don't have a very good memory, as you know, Gary. Uh, he'd, he'd crushed uh, his, his, his hand... And left hip bone, that's bad. 
had been smashed by shrapnel during Operation Goodwood. That was in July, July 18th, 1944. And he'd had a series of operations, but he was still incapacitated at the end of the war. Uh, he wasn't required for the army and was discharged on medical grounds. It sounds cruel, but on the other hand, the army can't look after everybody. Uh, what does he get when he comes out? Well, he's given a disability pension, but he anticipated that at least he could resume his training as a bricklayer. But unfortunately, even that was denied him. That, and to be honest, that given his injury, I can see what's I going on. I can out. understand that, yeah. And this is once more Alf Courtnage. I had hoped to have come out and continue as a bricklayer because there was such a lot of war damage. It would have been a good thing to have done. But I really didn't know what what one could do. There was a lot of demolition about, which I couldn't do because of my hand and my side. To be quite honest, it really did start knocking the confidence out of me. I wasn't able to play football. I couldn't play cricket. Whereas you saw other people coming out of the services and going back and doing the normal things you do when you're 21, 22 years of age. You can just imagine, you know, everybody playing football, cricket, having a good life. And there's you, semi-crippled. And at that age, I mean, you forget about how young these yeah, but, chaps were. Well, but to, well, 30 seems young to us. And these guys are 21, 22, as he said. Now, he eventually goes into the fur trade. That He'd worked in that a little bit for a short while before the war. And it's just lighter work, less physical demands. Uh, his hand was operated on and, and was rebuilt with the aid of a, a skin graft. I don't know how all that works, but, but he never really got full use of it again. Uh, terrible. Uh, but he's a real fighter, isn't he? What does he do? Tell, this is inspiring, I think. When we th- whenever we think this, we've got something wrong, we should think about people like Gordon. Well, he studied hard to improve his qualifications and eventually had a successful career as a director of the company. But the shadow of the war remained over his whole life. And this is, once more, Alf Courtnage. I was not very happy. My walking was restricted as it still felt as if the hip was not a complete unit anymore. I was having nightmares, more of the pain one had suffered. Nowadays, if these things happen, you get counselling. Well, in our day, there was no counselling. It was never thought of. Fortunately, they didn't last a long while, and gradually it eased off. I suppose one accepts these things. You overcome these things. Now, uh, one, another one, that it, this is another inspirational story, but it's also a tragic story that it happened to him in the first place. James Donovan uh, had been very badly facially wounded. He'd basically lost his nose. He, he was in a, a terrible state. And he went back to work as a driver uh, at the, at a laundry uh, uh, and then went on to, to be a coach driver. Now, let, let's hold that thought for a while. Um, he has to cope, Gary, with a lasting physical di- uh, facial disfigurement. Um, um do you think plastic service surgery would help? Well, it would help, but it would still be obvious. Um, but he had his own method of coping, and this is what James Donovan said. And I remember him telling me this, exactly this. He said, it was a strange thing. It just depends on the person. They look at you and they see what they want to see. Children were the worst at first. They used to call you Rudolph as in red nose reindeer, raspberry nose or strawberry nose. But I found if you said... Come here and I'll tell you all about it. They were all right once you'd told them, explained it all to them. That was the end of it. I thought the best thing I can do is not hide away, but to get amongst people. I got a PSV. Is that a... 
Public service vehicle, the well, bus license. You've got one of them. I do. And became a coach driver, which meant, that's why I mentioned it when you mentioned it, which meant I was mingling with different people every job I went on. You met different people every day. Some people would notice it, some wouldn't. Some would say, cool, you've been in the walls, mate. And that's it. You do feel as if people look at you, stare at you. But a lot of that is in your mind. You've got to get to the stage where you think to yourself, I'm not going to change things, so I've got to make the best of what I've got. I looked at people who'd lost their sight, and I think to myself, thank God that wasn't me. It never stopped me doing anything I wanted to do. Sometimes it's embarrassing because I can't feel when I've got a dew drop. It means hanging off the end of his nose. And I think... That's a lovely final touch that, you know, you've got your nose smashed up and your rebuilt nose. Ah, well. Well, however, Donovan, like so many of the people that you interviewed, had nightmares about the war, which uh, I would hazard is uh, sometimes triggered by the prospect of oral history interviews, particularly with you, which reawakened (laughs) old memories, the old traumas. Now, this is James again, James Donovan. I do get a bad night now and again. You just get a flashback. You dream about these things. I had one on Saturday night, two nights ago. That's just one of these things. Something just triggers you. And in that case, it was me. It was you, yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the things when people say about oral history. The people who do these interviews are not only giving their time, but they're, they're... uncovering a lot of things that they might have tried to suppress. It's absolutely, I've got so much. Well, one way of looking at it, I suppose, is that they're giving the whole of themselves, which, you know, often they have hidden uh, in order to cope. Yeah. Now, the very thought of a regimental association was uh, anathema to many of the old soldiers of the second five and four folly once they'd got home. Yeah, they were sick of the army and, and they were craving uh, civilian life. They may have missed comradeship, but at the same time, they don't want to be regimented. Uh, they don't want uh, uh, blazers, ties. Uh, the, 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 this is all crap to them. Uh, Not anathema, then. No, especially in the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the years immediately following the, the end of the war. Uh, what, what else is on their mind? Well, they're busy trying to re-establish the civilian lives that they had, studying for qualification and trying to uh, ameliorate the effects of having been absent from their work careers for up to six years, as was mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, that, that's a big thing. So they're trying to catch up. So they've got no time for distractions. Now, unfortunately, many of the non-Scottish veterans, they weren't even asked. It seems it was out of sight, out of mind. But in no, I just want to say before we start, uh, this sounds critical, but actually in those days... It was much, there were no WhatsApp groups. No, no it's much Facebook. more difficult. Uh, you had to write a bloody letter and post it. And distance was distance. And people didn't have money for uh, cost, uh, cost of phone calls. This is Jeff Hayward. He said, the attitude of most of the troops when they were anxiously waiting for demobilisation was, when I get out of the army, I wouldn't even join two pieces of string together. That was the expression that sticks in my mind. During the regimental days, I'd found that because the regiment tended to exude a sort of family atmosphere to to the ones that were in it right from the start, I never really felt that I would want to join an association of that type. He means he doesn't want to be a beer. Basically, I didn't even know there was a Scottish association. Nobody had approached me to join one. And it's fair enough. Uh, I was supposed to read that. 
Oh, well, I've done it for you. Yeah, I'll do the ones later on, though, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it was different for some of the Scots, particularly those who had risen through the ranks to hold responsible positions in the regiment, such as Tommy Wilmot, who had risen to the regimental quartermaster sergeant. Now, with his proven administrative skills, I'll put my teeth in, proven administrative skills and widespread contacts in the regiment, he was the obvious choice to be involved in setting up the association to cope with the influx of Second World War soldiers, which was going to be added to the existing spine of veteran members dating back to the Great War. And you've got to remember, they're not 80 or 90. Those veteran members are in their late 40s and 50s. They're, they're, They're not that old. And this is Tommy Wilmot, which Scott, is you. It's me. Sorry about that last one. Tommy said this. I, he had a fine Dundee accent. When we came back in February 1946, not many had been demobbed before me, but they were started to, to be demobbed quickly, and they were all coming back. There was a chap in the first Fife and Fourth of all. Captain Robertson, he was the manager of a savings bank. He says, there are some people wanting to contact us, Tom. Three businessmen in Dundee who were in the First World War. They got us together and they said, what you must do is form an association now. Right now. Get it organised because the longer you wait, the harder it will be. (laughs) We formed a committee. We had our first dinner in April 1946. The regiment came and we had a supper dinner. We decided it was important to keep an annual dinner every year and we've had one every single year in Dundee right up to and including 1999. I think it was at that one. It's been invaluable. They say old soldiers never die, but there it is. They do. Super or supper dinner? Super. Oh. Now, for Leslie Gibson, you're going to be working so hard now. I think that that might have been supper. For Leslie Gibson, the association became an important part of his life. And this is Leslie Gibson, who, because of your faux pas, you're now going to read another one. I joined the association in 1946 when it started again. They means the association. I was at the very first dinner, perhaps the six and a half years you spent in the army, that you feel in many respects were six and a half years out of your life. But in many ways, it was a good six and a half years. All times during the war weren't bad. There were a lot of good times. You would never get comradeship like it anywhere else, I'm quite sure. There was something about it that gelled people together. You learned to get on with people. You learned you could do things. I wouldn't have swapped it. We have reunion dinners and it's so great to meet up with blokes you haven't met up with for a long time and just talk about the old times. And there you go. That's... I noticed on one of your WhatsApp threads that uh, you sent me that, that, that your lads from the uh, were talking about organising a reunion. And if you think about it, it's 30 or 40 years since and it's time. Because at your age, Gary, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. Yeah, it's 40 odd years since. Yeah, and it it is it's tough, and uh, also in the same thread, someone had died. Yeah, that's true. Now, one moment at an, a, a, an association dinner summed up the old ties that bound them, so much so that when we in- interviewed the three men concerned, 
you mean the uh, Imperial War Museum yeah, interviewed yeah. them. They all treasured the memory. And this is once more Alex Gilchrist. Yeah. You're doing lots of work They now. all talked about it. And Alex said, on the 60th anniversary of us joining the Territorial Regiment in April 1939, that's uh, April 1999, I was invited specially to come up for this. It was a marvellous thing in Dundee on 16th of April, exactly 60 years since we were attested and joined up after the war. I met people like Jock Crichton, a great friend of mine, Les Gibson, he's the one I was just doing. Bill Scott, I interviewed him as well. All of whom I'd been in the territories with. We were all seated at the same table. Bill stood up and said, Do you realise why we're all sitting together? I said, No. (laughs) Probably not in that tone. He said, Because we were the first guard the regiment ever mounted at Waitwith Camp on 14th of April 1939. And here is the four of us still alive. We then had our photographs taken. Fall in the old guard 60 years later. Fabulous. Fabulous. Now, meanwhile, back in England... Jeff Haywood had hated the thought of returning to work as an insurance clerk, but he had no other feasible options. So what did he do? He stuck with it. Well, he got stuck in and eventually ended up with a successful stint as a chief clerk based in Leeds and Bradford. Yeah. He was totally immersed in his career and his new life, but with retirement came a long overdue assessment of what had been really important to him over the years, what had really mattered. Well, that happened to me when I retired from the Imperial War Museum and I really put all my energies into uh, those naughty lumps. I thought you meant me and these podcasts. No, those naughty lumps, I've been really working hard, Gary, on them. Now, Jeff Haywood found himself thinking more and more of his old comrades in the 2nd Fife and 4th Fire Yeomanry. Now, he attended the Dundee dinner of the Scottish Fife and 4th Fire Yeomanry Association held in November 1995. And this really kick-started something. And this is what Jeff Haywood says. We talked about his forming. Voice has changed. We talked. He's from the south. We talked about forming some little south of the border group that could meet occasionally for all those who couldn't afford or want to go to the Scottish do's because of the distance. I said, "I'll start the ball rolling. I'll write a letter to all the people I know in England that can't get up to these Scottish dinners." This idea grew from a very small beginning. We thought the best we could hope for was perhaps a dozen, but it's now grown, and we've got. 80. It is important to get people weaving with the idea of preserving their memories. And I'd like to pay tribute to Jeff Hayward because it was the south of the border group and the fact that they existed, which rendered it economically possible for the War Museum to do a project on the south on, on the uh, 5D4. Is, is Jeff Hayward still alive? He's the only one other than Harold Wilson, a different Harold Wilson, who is still alive from any of them. And uh, he's a fantastic bloke. Uh, but he gave us some membership in this. And uh, so that's why we interviewed so many. So we still interviewed a lot of the Scots, but half the regiment was English, Welsh and anything else you like uh, by the end. Um, now, uh, so let's have an, uh, yeah, more work for you. Uh, John Gray. Now, <laughs> he he's one of those... Perhaps he wouldn't have responded positively in 1952 or whatever, but he really responds positively to Jeff Hayward when when he he gets uh, news of this. It's out of the blue for him, doesn't it? And what does John Gray say? After that, nothing. Suddenly, I'm looking at the freebie newspaper and down in the corner was this little notice, south of the border. I've never moved so fast in all my life as to get onto that phone number. Speaking to the association secretary, I said, I thought everyone was dead. I thought I was the last one alive. 
It was absolutely incredible after all those years that there were still five and fourfers going, although I don't know any of them. The problem is, I might well have sat in a tank with them, sat and ate my food with them. But then, when you look at my photograph back then, and you look at me now, I don't look anything like it. I'm still handsome, suave and debonair, but I certainly don't look like that. I've got a few wrinkles now, and they're the same. So what he means is he, he doesn't recognise someone who's 50 years old. I mean, he knew them at 20, 21, and now they're 71, 72, 73. And he doesn't recognise them. But they soon got to know him, and... and I... Again, I can sympathise with that because you might find this hard to believe. I don't look like I looked when I was 17, 18 years old in the army. Were you an ugly sod? Uh, I was nine stone, two pound boxing. So um, I was one of my legs, basically. What was your best feature? Uh, My legs. Now, people often trot out the tired old cliche that old soldiers didn't like to talk about it. Well, there's a reason for this, and, and this is the oral historian in me. Uh, for, for relatives, it's relatives who say this, uh, and it's, I think there's two reasons for it. Can you imagine what they are? Well, one, it excuses their failure to listen to the um, tedious repetition of old war stories. It's uh, the old Uncle Albert character, isn't it? From uh, Only Fools and uh, Yeah. Oh, God, give it a rest, Granddad. You told us that a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, there's something else it means. What else do you think it does? If you don't let, you know, if you, he didn't like to talk about it, what else does that imply? Well, it implies that the veterans had seen too much and it, it generates a spurious second-hand glamour. Oh, they're the son of a war hero, but he doesn't like to talk about it and he, he can't. Um, the 544 were war heroes, by the way. I don't want to undermine that, but... Uh, uh, then again, there's something else that stops veterans talking a lot about their wartime careers. And I want you to think back to some of those tank stories at, say, Goodwood. Why, why else might they not have wanted to talk about it? Well, not only would their families not interested, but they were, the stories that they were telling were perhaps not suitable for the young kids. But they did like to talk about it when given half a chance. So where'd they, they get their chance? Well, they spoke about it to fellow veterans at the British Legion or best of all, to their old comrades in the regimental associations. Yeah, and there they've got, they can relive their youth, can't they? They can refight old battles. They can remember old friends dead long before their time. I always That was a phrase that stuck in my mind. Uh, they all thought they would be dead before they were 30, well, before they were 25. Uh, and now they're 80 and their friend's been dead for 60 years, it, dead long before their time. Uh, and most of them never really forgot what they'd experienced together. And, and let's go to Steel Brownlee uh, for a quote. And this last quote is just, for me, awesome. Out of all the mishmash of memories I have, one that is vivid when I walk the dog of an evening. If the wind is blowing quietly through the trees and everything else is still, I physically feel what it was like to be in a field in Normandy at the end of a day. Not mentally, just physically. It's a strange feeling. And and you can just imagine walking through the field and suddenly just gets that physical touch with it. Now, the voices of most, if not all, of the second well, five Jeff's before still alive. <laughs> men featured in your book yeah, what have... Book? Uh, that will be um, I'll be coming to that. burning still. Uh, most of them have now been silenced, but we will remember them. We will remember them. It's not just a cliche. I think 
One of the reasons we're so keen on this podcast series is because we are remembering them and we want other people to remember them. They're, they're a fabulous bunch. To Collectively, they were proud of what they'd achieved, but they, they weren't boastful, were they? No. So let's the last uh, let the last word be from one of the amazing, ordinary, yet extraordinary men, John Thorpe. I can say that I met the enemy face to face and I fired a machine gun at him for more days than I cared to think about it. But it was all chance. My country was fighting for her life. It could have happened to any man in Britain. It was my fate. I was a conscript. I did not object. Someone had to fight this war. I did what I had to do. I did not want to dodge the issue. Well, and that, for me, that stands for all of the lads we've been talking through. What, what a great bunch they were. <clears throat> um, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this series. There will be another regimental series. We're going to do a peacetime one on the South Nazis in peacetime. Uh, that's going to start in a month or two. Uh, and there'll probably be one on the 16th Durham Light Infantry in the distant future, because that's the book I'm working on at the moment. But uh, let the last word be with John Thorpe and the... Uh, Fight from four fire Yemenis. Uh, we we, ne- <laughs> we never learned how to say it. Now, at risk of having the last word, I would take this uh, opportunity to remind the listeners that they can get the book, Burning Still, A Tank Regiment at War 1939-1945 by Peter Hart. That's me. Available at all good bookshops, some not so good, uh, but it is freely available at the moment. And it's cheap these days. Yeah. Bit like you, Pete. It is. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?